I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Kilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, Bert, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Merisham. Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, Y. Kellerman, Saadaid13, David, Ava, Bob, The West Bank Robbery Podcast, Jamie, Gary, Max, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Ryan, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax News listeners. On this edition of the program, we continue our coverage of Gaza, this time with a very special guest, the former executive director of Human Rights Watch. From 1993 to 2022, Kenneth Roth. In this conversation, we'll be discussing the current war in terms of international law and human rights, with a focus on the issue of war crimes. All that and more on this edition of Parallax Views. Without any further ado, let's get right to it with Kenneth Roth. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest I'm really excited to be speaking with. He's an American attorney, human rights activist, and the former executive director of Human Rights Watch from 1993 to 2022. Kenneth Roth, how are you doing today Uh, amidst all the horrible things happening in the world? How are you personally? I'm doing fine. Thank you. It's good to be with you. So if you could, I want to start by talking a little bit about your time working for Human Rights Watch, because I've seen Human Rights Watch get uh, attacked by, I would say, um, pro-Israel voices over the years saying that it's biased, which I find very odd because Human Rights Watch has written whole reports on um, the actions of Hamas and even the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank. Uh, I find Human Rights Watch has always been very even-handed. It criticizes Hamas, it's criticized the Palestinian Authority, and it's criticized Israel. So what do you think is behind the constant drumbeat that HRW uh, has some kind of bias uh, against Israel? And is I've even seen places like the Wall Street Journal uh, claim that 
uh, Human Rights Watch gives cover to Hamas, which I think is patently ridiculous. Yeah, well, first, it's worth noting that, I mean, lots of governments say that we're biased against them. You know, this is like, you know, kind of the, the standard retort from governments that are trying to avoid scrutiny of their conduct. So, you know, we get this every place. I mean, I personally have been sanctioned by by both the Chinese government and the Russian government. You know, there's this long list of governments that accuse us of bias. So, you know, that's just part of the game. Um, in the case of Israel, as you note, you know, Human Rights Watch applies the same standards to Israel as we do to 100 other governments around the world. You know, these are not things we made up. These are international human rights standards. They're in treaties. They're, they're the law. Um, in any conflict, including the Israeli-Palestinian one, we, as a matter of principle, report on both sides. Um, it doesn't mean, you know, the equal amounts, because often, you know, the, the two sides act differently. There's a different level of, of uh, you know, of abuse. But, but nonetheless, we, as a matter of principle, look not only at Israeli government conduct, but also, as you note, at Hamas, at Islamic Shahad, at the Palestinian Authority, at Hezbollah, when, they, when they're, you know, fighting with Israel. So, um, again, these are just the, the same standards, the same factual investigations, the same methodology as we apply to every place else. Um, and when the Israeli government doesn't, you know, like our scrutiny, they say, oh, you must be biased. Or sometimes, oh, you must be anti-Semitic. You know, it, it, these are just standard lines. If you could, could you talk about uh, how Human Rights Watch became involved in the debates about Israel and apartheid uh, while you were part of uh, Human Rights Watch? Because I, I think that caused a lot of controversy, but you're not the only organization. Uh, Human Rights Watch wasn't the only organization to say that. I think Beth Selim even sort of uh, argued it before HRW. That's correct. I should say I mean, Human Rights Watch started working on Israel and Palestine before we were even called Human Rights Watch. We were at that point called Middle East Watch. We launched that in 1989 and you know, immediately started working on a range of governments in the Middle East, including Israel. Now, the apartheid report that you're referring to was in many ways you know, um, the culmination of many, many years seeing oppressive discrimination by Israeli authorities against Palestinians under occupation. And, you know, typically the Israeli government would say, oh, well, you know, yes, you know, there may be discriminatory conduct, there may be oppression, but, you know, this is just temporary. Don't worry about it. We've got the peace process. Right. And Once Oslo peace, goes through, uh, yeah. things will get better. Yeah. Just like the peace process, that'll take care of it. You know, but after 30 years of a peace process, which is going nowhere, you know, after 30 years of gradual settlement expansion, which was rendering almost inconceivable the idea of a contiguous, viable Palestinian state in the West Bank, we said, we're not accepting that excuse anymore. We're going to look at what it is right now, not what it theoretically could be at the end of a, you know, a, a, a mythical peace process. And so we applied the law. And I stress the law because the, the apartheid determination was not an historical analogy to South Africa. In fact, we were quite explicit about that. Rather, we applied two treaties. Um, one is the UN Convention Against Apartheid. The other was the Rome Statute, the founding document for the International Criminal Court. And they each define apartheid. Um, and in essence, what they look to is, you know, is one racial or ethnic group trying to dominate another? Um, are they engaging in oppressive discrimination? And are there examples of that discrimination that have actually taken place? And when we applied those clear standards in a comprehensive 213-page report, 
There was no question. This was apartheid. Um, and as you say, we were not the first group to do it. We were the first international group to find that. Um, but B'Tselem, the leading Israeli group, had done it a few months before us. Um, a number of, of Palestinian groups had done it. Since then, Amnesty has done it. Um, and in fact, I mean, every single serious human rights organization that has looked at the issue has come to the same conclusion that this is apartheid. There are slight variations in terms of where geographically is that apartheid? Is it just in the territories or, or is it broader? But um, And Human Rights Watch found that the elements of the crime come together in the occupied territory. And we did not make a finding of apartheid with respect to kind of green line Israel. I, I wanted to uh, emphasize that because I do think that's a debate that often comes up. People will say, well, those reports are only talking about the occupied territories. They're not talking about Israel proper. Um, I still think either way, that's not. It's 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 an untenable situation. In other words, I mean, we, we didn't find apartheid within Israel. We found systematic discrimination against Palestinians or, or what are called Arab Israelis. But, um, you know, because Arab Israelis still are citizens, they can travel, they represent in the Knesset. You know, we didn't feel that the um, we could make the case for apartheid within Israel recognized borders. But in the occupied territories, there is blatant discrimination. And what's interesting is that, um, you know, we also looked at the defenses because the Israeli government will said, oh, we, you know, there's a security threat, as there obviously is. So we need this apartheid. They don't say apartheid, but they, we need these, you know, these measures. And but when you start looking more closely, the settlements are not about security. In fact, the settlements, the people who live there are less secure because they're surrounded by Palestinians. The seizure of, of water and land is not about security. It's about a land grab or resource grab. The refusal to allow Palestinians who live in Area C, the, the 60% of the, of the West Bank that surrounds most of the, um, all the settlements, um, when they cannot even build a extra bedroom on their home because the Israeli government's trying to drive them out of that territory, that's not about security. That's about demographic engineering. And we went through a series of things like this to show that this is not about security. This is about just, you know, an ongoing, seemingly endless oppressive discrimination that is rightly characterized as apartheid. If you could... You know, if for people that are not familiar with international law, what what is that difference between uh, just discrimination and then, you know, I mean, apartheid is the big accusation. So if people don't understand what the legal context of it is, could you explain that? Sure. I mean, the, the simple answer is that discrimination is a violation of human rights, which is a serious problem. Apartheid is a crime against humanity. You can get prosecuted for imposing apartheid. So then I want to talk about what has happened from October 7th to now. What is your basic analysis, both of the Hamas attack and then how Israel has responded to it and the ways in which people are arguing about that? Um, and and a lot of people are, are using the October 7th attack to say that Israel, I think basically people are arguing that it has carte blanche, which under international law, that's not true either. That's correct. Let's start off with what happened on October 7th, because what Hamas did on October 7th was a blatant violation of international humanitarian law. You know, if, if international humanitarian law, basically the Geneva Conventions and their protocols, you know, the, the laws designed to spare civilians the hazards of conflict. If they stand for anything, it's that you don't slaughter civilians. 
You don't abduct civilians. You don't fire rockets indiscriminately into civilian occupied areas, all of which Hamas did. So what Hamas did on October 7th was commit repeated blatant war crimes. And it's worth looking at some of the you know, so-called justifications that people put forward because they say, oh, you know, Hamas was rep- um, resisting occupation or it was resisting apartheid. And those are not defenses because humanitarian law says regardless of your cause, you cannot commit war crimes. And so it doesn't matter whether this was you know, resisting occupation or not. There are certain things you just can't do, even in a, a, you know, a war that you are going to define as just. So that is you know, the basic analysis of, of what happened there. Now, another key premise of international humanitarian law is that war crimes by one side do not justify war crimes by the other. And so Israel had every right to you know, respond to this violent threat posed by Hamas, but it had to do it consistent with humanitarian law, just as Hamas had to fight consistent with humanitarian law if it wanted to resist the occupation. And Israel has not been abiding by humanitarian law in various respects. And I can just run through kind of a few illustrations. Um, I mean, one is humanitarian law says you can only shoot at military targets not at civilians or civilian institutions or civilian structures. But in fact, I mean, there are, the independent Israeli media outlet 972 just put out this very interesting account how the Israeli military was deliberately targeting certain civilian targets, such as kind of prestige apartment buildings, with the aim of putting pressure on Palestinian civilians to in turn pressure Hamas to give up. And that's a blatant war crime. Um, you can't. You cannot use military force to put pressure on civilians to try to change the course of a war. And in fact, I mean, it, it's cruel in this case too, because you know what's a Palestinian civilian in Gaza going to do? Stand up and start protesting against Hamas? I mean, that's a quick way to get shot. You know, Hamas is a military dictatorship. So you know, the idea that it's appropriate to squeeze Palestinian civilians to try to change Hamas's conduct is just wrong. Another rule is you cannot fire indiscriminately. What that means is that there may be, you know, isolated military targets in an area. You have to shoot them, attack them independent, you know, individually. You cannot treat the entire area as a military target. But we're seeing Israel instead decimating entire neighborhoods, which certainly looks like indiscriminate fire. And then the thing that probably is coming up most often is that there's a rule called the rule of proportionality, which is that even if you are firing at a legitimate military target, you cannot shoot if the predictable consequences to civilians will be disproportionate compared to the concrete military advantage. And we are seeing this over and over again. You know, just an illustration, Israel was dropping 2,000 pound bombs on the Jabalia refugee camp. Now, the US government will not use a 2,000-pound bomb in a populated area. It won't use an 1,000-pound bomb in a populated area. It is very reluctant to use a 500-pound bomb. But Israel was just went ahead. And these were US-supplied bombs, I should add. So this was predictably going to cause devastation to uh, a civilian populated area. Or to take another example, you know, Israel has repeated over and over that it needs to take over the hospitals in Gaza because Hamas is using them 
for military purposes. Now, Israel says there are, you know, are command centers underneath the hospitals that is yet to prove that. There do seem to be a handful of tunnels, you know, a, a, a collection of some rifles, no evidence yet that Hamas was actually shooting from those hospitals. And you again have to ask these questions, you know, is this modest military gain, does that justify the devastation to public health of shutting down hospitals in the middle of war? Because not only do people who are injured by the bombing, they don't get treated, but ordinary people don't get treated either. You know, pregnant women, people on cancer treatment, you know, people on dialysis, everything shuts down. So there is enormous cascading harm to the civilian population, which it's just very difficult to say that that's justified by the modest military advantage of closing off the tunnel underneath the hospital. And then the, the you know final thing I'll note, um, and the International Criminal Court prosecutor just referenced this, but international humanitarian law requires allowing the civilian population in need access to humanitarian aid. And Israel has you know allowed drips and drabs of humanitarian aid here and there, but is basically shut off the water, shut off the electricity, allowing, you know, modest amounts of food or, or medicine in. And, you know, this in the midst of massive displacement. So people, you know, already have endured 16 years of blockade. They already needed humanitarian aid. Suddenly they're out of their homes. They're just on the street or in, you know, makeshift shelters. And they need this aid and they're not getting it. And so this too is a war crime. And these are you know, just illustrations of ways in which Israel is utterly ignoring humanitarian law. Now, let me make um, two final points, if I could, you know, because let's look at how Israel defends itself. One is it says Hamas is using human shields. It's their fault. Now, Hamas does use human shields. They also fire from populated areas, endangering the civilian population. These two are violations of humanitarian law. But, you know, as I said, violations by one side don't justify violations by the other. And in the case of human shields, there still is a duty on the attacker to refrain from attack if the predictable harm to civilians will be disproportionate. And, and we're seeing over and over that it clearly is, you know, that, that so many civilians are being killed for what often are, are kind of modest military gains. Um, they will, you know, destroy entire houses because, you know, supposedly some Hamas fighter is living there. Um, now, the other thing Israel talks about is warnings. And humanitarian law does require you to give an effective advance warning if possible. And Israel, um, you know, traditionally has given warnings about particular buildings. They say, evacuate this building, we're about to vomit. This time, there's still some of that. But more commonly, they're saying, evacuate the entire area. You know, everybody in northern Gaza leave. You know, now everybody in, you know, whole parts of Khan Yunus in the south leave. And what they've been gradually doing is pushing people to smaller and smaller parts of Gaza, not even guaranteeing security there. You know, they've been still bombing, um, you know, the route to southern Gaza at first. Now they're bombing various parts of, of, of southern Gaza. They don't even say, here's a safe area. They just say, here's a safer area. You know, they're not even guaranteeing anybody anything about where the bombs are not going to drop. And so this ends up being, you know, an ostensibly humane gesture, the warning, done in an utterly cruel and inhumane way. Because there's no guarantee you don't get bombed. There's no guarantee that you're going to get humanitarian aid. Um, these are desperate people who are looking around and saying, where can I possibly go? And, you know, one big fear is that the aim, and certainly, you know, some of the extremists in Netanyahu government, his government have, have articulated this, the aim is ultimately to push them into Egypt. 
to have a second so-called Nakba. That is the reference to the catastrophe of 1948, where 70, 700,000 Palestinians were chased from Israel and never allowed home. Um, and the fear is they're about to do that again. Now, Biden has been saying no, you know, no permanent displacement, but we'll see how this ends up. I just wanted to mention in regards to that issue of giving warnings. I mean, I think the issue is that, okay, so you're giving a warning that an area is, is quote unquote unsafe, but it, it seems like increasingly there is uh, nowhere that is safe in Gaza. That's the issue. You know, so I mean, this warning, first of all, the most recent warnings, you know, Israel has kind of divided up Southern Gaza into a bunch of tiny little subunits. But, you know, the map that they distribute is online. Many people don't have electricity. They don't have Wi-Fi access, you know, so they can't even get this map. But, you know, if you see that your tiny little area is designated as an evacuation zone, where do you go? Nobody's guaranteeing you anything. Do you think that there's an issue with maybe how some of us in the United States or, or other Western countries uh, perceive Gaza? Because I, I think people don't realize it's a very small strip of land. It's extremely small. It's very densely populated. That's why even when I hear the human shields thing, it's bothersome to me because, you know, it's so densely populated. I, I think that, you know, you could say, oh, well, that building may have a Hamas person in it. And it's it's very possible that, that could be true just because of how densely populated it is. So I, I just find that I don't think people can wrap their head around how small Gaza is and, uh, you know, what that entails when you're bombing it. Yeah. Well, this goes to this whole, you know, Israeli stated goal of eliminating Hamas. And, you know, what does that mean? Um, you know, Hamas, on the one hand, is a military force that poses a genuine threat to Israel. On the other hand, it's a political movement. It has broad support, you know. And and so even if it were somehow decapitated and some of the leadership were killed or exiled, it's not going to eliminate Hamas. And this, you know, matters because you have to assess civilian cost against, you know, military goals. And if the military goal is, in a sense, overstated, if it's never going to be possible to eliminate Hamas, it then, you know, really forces a much more critical view of um, the necessary civilian casualties that entail from, from these attacks. With regards to the arguments that are being had about everything from human shields to I've seen people say, uh, pro-Palestinian people saying, well, uh, you know, under international law, Israel can only respond if it if they're attacked by another nation state or people argue over, oh, is this a genocide or not? Do you think some people get caught up in the um, wrong debates at times uh, when it comes to international law and the situation in Gaza? Uh, yes, I, yes. I, I mean, this argument that, oh, Israel cannot respond because how can you have self-defense when it's not a recognized state attacking you? It's just crazy. I mean, have they never heard of civil wars? You know, civil wars, like by definition, are a rebel group in a, within a nation. And, and you know, this rule would say, oh, you can never respond to a civil war attack, you know, because it's only from within your territory. I mean, that's crazy. Of course, Israel can respond. They were, you know, attacked by, a, by you know, a vicious military force. They can respond to that. So um, this is, you know, people who are kind of getting lost in these legalisms and not under, just not, you know, they're losing sight of reality. 
And do you think that's also true? I mean, we don't have to get into it deeply, but I, I see a lot of people questioning, is this a genocide? Isn't it? I've seen that on the Israeli side too, where they'll say, well, what Hamas attempted to was a genocide. I I almost feel like people are getting caught up in that debate rather than just asking the question of, you know, regardless of, of whether we consider something a genocide, you know, there's human rights abuses and, and war crimes and crimes against humanity happening. Uh, do you think people get too caught up in, I guess, um, using certain words to describe what we're seeing. But you're exactly right. There, There is a certain segment that feels that unless you call it a genocide, it's not really that serious. And that's just wrong. You know, these are blatant war crimes. That's serious enough. You know, so I, I worry about the genocide debate because, you know, what if people decide, oh, well, maybe in the end it's not genocide. Does that mean it was all okay? No. You know, it's these are war crimes. So um, I, I think that this is, you know, an effort to kind of, build the rhetoric, which sometimes loses sight of the awful reality that is underneath that rhetoric. I also wanted to ask you about um, the the issues of how we define anti-Semitism uh, in the United States. I know a lot of people use the IHRA definition, uh, although I would argue the IHRA definition is far too broad, and that's why there were other definitions given, such as the Jerusalem De- Declaration and also the Nexus uh, Guidelines document, which I interviewed someone who was involved in that, in that with that, uh, Professor Dove Waxman from UCLA. I, I feel as if people don't even realize there's a debate around whether the IHRA definition is actually um, the ideal definition. Could you speak to that? Sure. Um, there is a big debate around that. And the IHRA definition, often referred to as the IRA definition, um, was, you know, I think initially well-intentioned. I mean, the person who drafted it is generally credited with being Ken Stern, who's a professor now at Bard, who has repudiated the whole thing because it's been so misused. But the problem is the so-called, um, the, the examples given under this working definition of, of anti-Semitism. And partisans of the Israeli government are using some of those examples to try to silence legitimate criticism of Israeli misconduct. So I'll give you just three examples. Um, there's a reference in the IRA definition to demonizing Israel. Now, you know, the entire human rights enterprise is about demonizing human rights abusers. You know, we try to spotlight their abuses, shame them, stigmatizing them. It's all about demonization. So if that makes, you know, you anti-Semitic, then any effort to uphold human rights is anti-Semitic, which is crazy. You know, there's a, um, a a statement in there, you know, applying double standards to Israel is anti-Semitism, which leads these partisans to say, oh, you criticized this here and you didn't criticize it there, or you devoted this number of pages to us and that number of pages to them. And it gets into this kind of bean counting exercise when, in fact, these are the same standards that Israel is being held to as, as everybody else. It's not about double standards. It's about being held to the standards that is the core of the objection. Um, that is not anti-Semitism. And then the final thing comes back to our apartheid discussion, because there's one example which says that if you call the Israeli government racist, that that's anti-Semitic. But what if it is being racist? You know, the entire apartheid that is imposed on the occupied territories is the effort by one racial group to dominate another. And and that is a racist enterprise. That's not anti-Semitism. That's reality. So this is this shows how the IRA definition is really being abused to try to silence legitimate criticism. And and I vastly prefer the two you noted, the Jerusalem Declaration and the Nexus document, 
because they both articulate examples of legitimate criticism of Israel that are not anti-Semitism, including what I've just outlined now. And so they are much more deferential to freedom of expression and free debate in this context. Now, one um, real problem with this abuse of the IRA definition, this abuse of the concept of anti-Semitism, is that it takes a very important issue, a real challenge for Jews around the world, and it trivializes it. So we should all be fighting anti-Semitism. This is a real evil. But when partisans of the Israeli government try to silence criticism of Israel by accusing people of being anti-Semitic, it cheapens this very important concept. And of course, some people are anti-Semitic. I'm not going to pretend that every critic, you know, is free of anti-Semitism. But, but much of what passes as just, you know, kind of mainstream human rights criticism is now tarred as anti-Semitic. And if people think that that's what anti-Semitism is about, it's just a, a cheap way to stifle criticism of Israel, you're harming the important fight against anti-Semitism. And so, you know, maybe in some way the Israeli government is better off because it, you know, doesn't face as much criticism, but Jews around the world are worse off because they do face anti-Semitism and suddenly this real important fight is tarnished by this abuse of the concept. You think it also has um, potential ramifications for being able to adequately teach uh, students about the Israel-Palestine conflict in higher education. So I ask that because um, I mentioned Dove Waxman, who I would say he I, he's not an anti-Israel person. He believes in, in the right of Israel to exist, et cetera, et cetera. But he does teach a course in Israel-Palestine uh, in the whole conflict. And you have to be able to show the Palestinian side of it too, regardless of your own views as a, as a professor and a teacher. Um, and I feel like you know, a very broad definition of anti-Semitism that basically includes, uh, you know, criticism of Israel as anti-Semitic makes it impossible for a lot of academics to teach the topic uh, adequately. Well, that's the point. You know, that's that's why people are abusing this concept of anti-Semitism, because they don't want a pro-Palestinian point of view expressed. And that's, you know, it's obviously a, a poor way to understand the conflict, but it also, as I mentioned, cheapens the concept of anti-Semitism, a very important concept, one we need to be dealing with in a positive way. It cheapens it by just turning it into a tool of censorship. I was wondering if we could also speak about issues beyond the bombardment of Gaza. So, I mean, there's hunger, uh, disease issues related to the water supply. How important is it that people keep an eye on those issues in Gaza right now? I think, you know, Gaza is a brewing public health crisis. You know, it's just a matter of time before you see things like cholera, because, you know, there are not even adequate toilets for this huge displaced population. Um, the sanitation system has been shut down because the electricity has been turned off. You know, the desalinization plants that could provide fresh water can't operate because there's not enough fuel. So this is, you know, a guaranteed public health crisis, not to mention, you know, suddenly children are not getting vaccinated, you know, people can not get treated for even, you know, basic illnesses. Um, so all of this is the predictable cascading effect of this massive bombardment coupled with the shutting off of most humanitarian aid. And this is, you know, again, why it seems so clear that the Israeli government is fighting this war in a way that violates 
the humanitarian law requirement not to impose disproportionate harm on the civilian population. Another thing that I, I see pro-Israel voices often say, and I want you to have a chance to um, respond to it, is that, well, we can't trust the numbers we're getting from the Gaza Ministry of Health because it's Hamas run. Um, how are we to respond to these arguments well, you know, I mean, Human Rights Watch's experience with the Gaza Ministry of Health is that its numbers have been pretty good, um, you know, certainly in prior conflicts. You know, yes, it's Hamas running. You know, it could be putting forth propaganda. We all know that it doesn't separate fighters from civilians. So these numbers are not about civilians killed. They're about people killed. Um, we have no reason, though, to doubt the roughly 70 percent that they say are women and children who are not combatants. Um, and of course, you know, many of the men killed are not combatants either. So. I, you know, let's assume that the numbers are off by one or two or 3,000. It still is an awful situation. And I think we shouldn't lose sight of that. The other thing uh, that I've heard from a few people, uh, such as the lawyer Alan Dershowitz, is that, and I think this is a ridiculous argument, but, uh, you know, people will try to argue, well, Hamas won by uh, a plurality in the last election that happened over a decade ago. And it was a, it was a bl bare plurality rather than a huge majority, as some people have tried to claim. But I almost feel like that's all secondary. I mean, I, civilians are civilians. But look, I mean, first of all, the, the argument that, you know, um, I mean, even President Herzog of Israel sort of blamed the civilian population of, of Gaza for not overthrowing Hamas. Yeah, and what did... You want them to do, you know, stand up and get shot. I mean, as I said, this is a military dictatorship. You cannot just go protest on the street and hope it's going to work out well. You know, so um, many people look to the election, which, you know, Hamas won, but the vast majority of the population today wasn't even born then, or at least couldn't have voted then, you know, and, and the fact that you vote a certain way, you know, well over a decade ago, doesn't turn you into a legitimate military target even then, let alone now, because there's been no vote since. So this is all kind of irrelevant. What this is really about is just trying to paint Palestinian civilians as unsympathetic to try to minimize global outrage at so many of them being killed. And, you know, Herzog has been the least bad of this. I mean, it, when, you know, when Netanyahu invokes a biblical injunction to kill all men, women, children, and animals. Amalek. Yes, exactly. Um, he, you know, is essentially giving a green light to mass atrocities. When Defense Minister Gallant says, these are all just human animals, referring, you know, not to Hamas, but to the entire population of Gaza. He was talking about the siege. He is inviting mass atrocities. And so, you know, you, one definition of command responsibility is, you know, do the most senior officials, do the people in the chain of command, try to rein in, try to prevent war crimes. And what we've seen is just the opposite, that they're basically giving a green light to war crimes. I, I know you said that Herzog may have been one of the best on this compared to the others, but even he, I think, said, you know, there are no innocent civilians in, in, in Gaza, yeah, no, no, which, I was, yeah. I was particularly disappointed for, by Herzog because I expected, you know, what we got from Netanyahu or Gallant, but Herzog is not, you know, one of the radical right. I mean, he's sort of a more respected centrist figure. And even he said, oh, they all, you know, basically, you know, voted for Hamas, like, who cares what happens to them? And that was a real wrong thing to say. Before we start closing out, um, 
you know, I've had a lot of people say to me in the past few years, they've they've sort of given up on international law. They don't think that human rights groups can really affect change. And I, I think some people are spiraling, at least people I know are spiraling towards nihilism. Um, what would you say to those people that are, you know, at that point where they're like, well, nothing is going to change. It seems like even this human rights activism isn't able to stop uh, what is happening, it, not just in in um, Gaza, but also places like the Sudan, um, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, how would you respond to people that are giving up on the hopes that are provided by adherence to international law? Well, I, I should say that, you know, just because there are violations of the law doesn't mean you abandon the law. You know, if, if you know, people still commit murder, we don't give up on the law against murder. You know, so I actually think that um, international humanitarian law has in, in an odd way been reaffirmed by the outrageousness of the violations on both sides, because you actually don't see people saying, oh, just let Hamas do whatever it wants. Oh, just let Israel do whatever it wants. Rather, they say, these are the standards and we should hold them to it. And if you look at, you know, even Biden, who started off basically, you know, wrapping himself in the Israeli flag and and giving a green light to whatever would come, you know, which is a big mistake. But even he is now backed off and is putting real pressure on the Israeli government to minimize civilian casualties, to allow in humanitarian aid, to, you know, do what's required by humanitarian law. So um, I think the global outrage is um, affecting Israel, not as quickly as I would want. But to say that none of this matters is just not looking what's happening on the ground. What do you make about not only what's happening in Gaza, but uh, what's happening in other parts of the world? I mentioned uh, the Sudan. Um, you know, I don't know what your view is on the the issue with um, Nagorno-Karabakh, but you know, I, I think the Armenians have been through a lot recently, and there's still a lot of fear of the Iliyev regime in Azerbaijan um, going further into southern Armenia. Um, what do you think the primary concerns we should have right now are when it when it comes to just these hot spots that could get very bad very quickly? I mean, look, at the lesson that I take is you've got to kind of keep your eye on the ball and put pressure on abusive governments. And so, you know, in Sudan, I mean, the main perpetrators in Darfur are the so-called rapid support forces, a paramilitary group, the the successor to the old Janjaweed that committed genocide in Darfur 20 years ago. Their principal backers are the United Arab Emirates, you know, the hosts of the COP28 summit, a close U.S. ally. You know, where's the pressure on, on the UAE to stop, to stop underwriting these mass atrocities? You know, if you take, you know, what China's doing in Xinjiang, where it is, you know, detained more than a million Uyghurs to try to force them to abandon their religion, their culture, their language, um, this requires pressure on China, which there's been some of, but just not enough. And you know, I, I wish that sort of the intense pressure being put on Russia with respect to war crimes in Ukraine was matched in other situations of large-scale war crimes or, or significant human rights violations. I mean, I, I know this isn't necessarily your area of expertise, but I, I think a lot of people feel like um, massive human rights violations are happening more now, or maybe they're just noticing more because it's in the news. Is there something in the air or just something politically that's happening in the world right now that is causing us to see more incidents of human rights violations? Or is it just that we're more educated? Yeah. I mean, look, part of it is that that communication is easier. It's harder to hide things. 
But you know, I, as long as I've been a, a human rights activist, people are saying, "Oh, this is the worst era ever." So I've heard this many, many times. You know, um, this is you know a bad moment, but I think we have to be very careful about calling it the worst era ever. I mean, I, I can think of you know a lot of periods where things were pretty awful as well, including, for example, you know, after the the end of the Cold War, the demise of the Soviet Union, and suddenly you have these outpouring of ethnic conflicts with you know genocide in Rwanda, genocide in in Bosnia. Um, you know, there there have been many episodes like this over the year. Um, and, you know, today what we do face is, you know, a more multipolar world, um, a U.S. government that is less powerful, that is also a bit more isolationist, um, or at least, you know, restrictions on the U.S. government, particularly on the Republican side of making it more isolationist. And and so there is more of a sense uh, on the part of abusive forces that they can get away with it. Which is why I think you know a concerted defense of human rights is so important. Not something done by the U.S. alone, but something that enlists you know not just the European Union, but rights-inclined democracies throughout the global South as well. You know, particularly Latin America, parts of Africa, parts of Southeast Asia. There are allies out there, and they need to be enlisted. Why do you say not by the U.S. alone? Because I think that's a very important point. Well, the. Um, First of all, the U.S. kind of lacks the power that it once did. It, I mean, it's a very important player. Um, it is, you know, it is more powerful than anybody else. It has the most potential to to make a difference. It doesn't always do that effectively. Um, and it's important to clarify that these are universal standards. So, the broader the coalition defending them, the more effective that defense will be. I also want to, you know, uh, every every time I have a guest that mentions uh, the multipolar world. Uh, people want someone will inevitably say to me, "Oh, that's just a Russian talking point. We're not in a multipolar world." I wanted you to be able to respond to them because I, I think they're off base. I think it's just the descriptive. I mean, there are you know outlets like RT that use the term multipolar world to justify things Russia does, but I don't think that's the context we're using it in. Yeah, no, no. I mean, obviously, RT or the Russian line is to sort of say everybody's bad. You know, nobody's good. So don't bother us, Russia, because there are lots of bad guys in the world. You know, that's kind of the, the Russian line. And so, you know, we're all just evil. So don't bother Putin. Um, the, but in fact, in the multipolar world, if you just look at, you know, relative economic clout, um, just the, you know, the emergence of very significant regional actors, you know, whether it's Brazil and Latin America or India and South Asia or, you know, countries like South Africa or Nigeria or Kenya or Ethiopia in Africa. I mean, you can go around the world and there are, you know, very significant regional powers that are often the dominant power in that region. And to be most effective, one has to work with them. It's not enough to just impose, um, you know, standards from the outside. I've had a lot of Palestinians say to me recently, uh, specifically my contacts in the West Bank, that they feel as if, they're being forgotten about right now because all eyes are on Gaza. Now, I, I have to say, I think that there's a reason all eyes are on Gaza that's very obvious to everyone. But do you think there is truth to the idea that we shouldn't take our eyes off the West Bank and that we sort of need to uh, walk and chew bubblegum at the same time and have a focus on both if we care about this issue of uh, the plight of the Palestinians? Yeah, I mean, in the West Bank, you know, first of all, we have to recognize that apartheid is still strong there. Um, second, that there has been a real outpouring of unchecked settler violence, typically aimed at depopulating parts of Area C, kind of broadening the area where there just are no Palestinians left. 
Um, and, you know, Kareem Khan, to his credit, who you know has not done a whole lot, but he's been very good rhetorically, he was the International Criminal Court prosecutor. He just warned Israel explicitly about the settler, settler violence. The West Bank is also going to be important if there is ever going to be a two-state solution resurrected. Because, you know, if you go to the West Bank today and you sort of stand on one of the hilltops and look around, and by the time you've, you know, taken out these settlements and the outposts and the bypass roads, you're left with, you know, these little Bantustans, these Palestinian enclaves that are non-contiguous that, you know, wouldn't begin to add up to a, a viable state. And so if there is going to be a sincere effort, which is not going to happen under Netanyahu, but if, you know, a future Israeli government under pressure from the United States were finally willing to countenance a two-state solution, it would require big changes in the West Bank, you know, either dismantling or transferring the settlements to the Palestinians. Are you familiar with the one-state reality hypothesis? Yes. What, what is your opinion on that? Well, I mean, that's a kind of a de facto description of reality. In other words, it's it's a way of saying, you know, yes, two-state solution would be nice, but the Israeli settlement expansion has rendered that for the time being impossible. And so we should just recognize that there is this one-state reality that's, you know, the product of the Israeli government. And then the question is, okay, within that one-state reality, do Israelis and Palestinians have equal rights or is it apartheid? Um, but we've been driven to this by the settlement expansion. We have to keep that clear. In terms of what human rights uh, activists should be doing going forward, uh, and also what the U.S. can do going forward, what a post-Netanyahu Israel has to do going forward, what's your vision for outcomes in the future? Where do these different parties need to put their efforts going forward? Look, the most urgent thing is how do you stop the slaughter in, in Gaza? And, you know, I think it's almost, you know, it's foreseeable what the end result is going to be. It's going to be, you know, releasing all the hostages in return for some significant release of prisoners and the surviving Hamas military leaders going to Qatar, something like that, you know, similar to what the PLO did in 1982 being sent from Beirut to Tunis, which would allow Netanyahu to say, I've decapitated Hamas because this leadership is either dead or in Qatar. And, you know, the sooner we get to that, the better, because in the meantime, people are being killed every single day. There's more civilian infrastructure being destroyed. So that's, you know, a, a route to end the fighting. But then the big question comes up, okay, you know, how do you, is this, a, you know, is this disaster also an opportunity? Is it a chance to, to revive this moribund peace process. And I hope it is. Um, it is going to take a very different government in Israel, something that is, you know, not dominated by the far right, but is willing to sort of make some difficult choices now, because I would hope there's recognition that the Netanyahu strategy, which is basically to impose apartheid and keep kicking down the road any, you know, any possibility of a, of a Palestinian state. I hope there's recognition that that's not a viable strategy. Then in terms of the U.S., do you think there will be more of a push to revive these uh, the peace process? You know, it's hard to say. I mean, Biden has shown very little interest in this so far. He just kind of has wished it would go away. Um, he has, you know, belatedly been more outspoken about curtailing um, the Israeli abuses against Palestinians, both the dep deprivation of aid and the bombing of civilians. 
but you know they haven't really said much about ultimate political solutions. So it's it's kind of too early to say. And as we're moving into an election year, you know, I'm not sure that Biden's going to want to devote the political capital that would be required to make something happen. I wanted to ask you, since you mentioned the Palestinian prisoners, is there an issue with some of those prisoners being held in uh, forms of um, indefinite detention or administrative detention? Yes, yes. I mean, you know, a couple thousand of them are in what's called administrative detention, which basically means you know, indefinite detention without charge or trial. Um, and so these are people who are not fairly held. They've never been convicted of anything. They're not even charged with anything. Even the people who have been convicted almost uniformly have been convicted in military court with very few procedural rights and often torture. So I think it's fair to say that, you know, a large percentage of the Palestinian prisoners are there unjustly given the lack of due process behind their confinement. I also wanted to ask you something I've been heard kicked around lately is that if it wasn't for what Hamas did, uh, there would have been a normalization between Israel and and Arab states, uh, particularly Saudi Arabia. And I've even seen some people go as far as to say, well, if there would have been this Arab-Israel normalization, that would have revived the Palestinian peace process. And I see no real evidence of that whatsoever. So maybe maybe I could get your take on that. I mean, the opposite. You know, I mean, the, this normalization was going on, it was, it was proceeding despite the Palestinians. Well, I mean, I, the, to me, it was, I, I know this is a crude way of putting it, but I I feel like the Abraham Accords were about shelving uh, the Palestinian issue. But that, that, but that was true. You know, in other words, I mean, the ones to date, um, including, you know, I suppose the most powerful one, which would be the United Arab Emirates, did nothing for the Palestinians. You know, the UAE supposedly got a commitment not to formally annex West Bank territory, even though de facto annexation has proceeded. Um, I, I spoke to the Saudi foreign minister in September and asked him, are you going to do any better in the Emiratis? And he sort of said, well, we're going to try, you know, but, um, you know, the, what was being talked about in the media at that point was, you know, basically giving money to the Palestinian Authority, so paying off this corrupt entity, which doesn't do anything, or and, and also, you know, some modest shift of land from area C to area B, which would do nothing to change the Bantustan nature of, of the West Bank. So these were minimalist changes that were not getting at the heart of the apartheid and the, the lack of any kind of viable peace process. Closing out here, one thing that I've heard a lot lately um, from friends of mine who I, I would describe as maybe liberal Zionists or, or liberal supporters of Israel that are not fans of Netanyahu is that things will get better after Netanyahu is gone. And I, I agree in so much as I think that would be a big step in the right direction. Um, but I also think people need to avoid being too Pollyannish uh, because I think it's going to take a lot more than just the Netanyahu government going away for us to really make progress on a lasting peace. Yeah, and I think that's true. I mean, I think um, moving beyond Netanyahu is a, is a necessary but not a sufficient step. And, uh, you know, if what emerges from that is sort of a broad centrist coalition that would, you know, have more possibility of making the concessions needed for a genuine peace. But, you know, whether it's going to have the will to do that, whether the Israeli public opinion is going to be behind that, because the Israeli public has moved to the right since the Hamas attack of October 7th, um, it's very unclear. 
what are some of the concessions that would have to be made uh, for a lasting peace to happen? I mean, I think the main ones are territorial, um, which is to say that, you know, they have to give up a lot of the settlements, if not all of the settlements. Um, that's going to be the biggest impediment because the settler population has become a very significant constituency within Israeli politics, and they don't want those concessions made. I want to thank you again, uh, Ken Roth, for coming on Parallax Views. In closing, what do you hope my listeners get out of the conversation we've had here for the past 50 or so minutes? Uh, what are the key points you want them to take away? Well, that pressure is needed on the Israeli government to curtail its war crimes. It's not going to do it on its own. The U.S. government is in a unique position to exert that pressure. It's not in Biden's nature. He's going to have to you know, be pushed to do the right thing. He's moved in that direction. He's now you know, prospectively saying, pay more attention to civilian casualties, let in more aid. He still refuses retroactively to assess what Israel has done. He's not yet saying, and you've been violating these standards left and right. You've been committing war crimes. And I, I fear that that our application of humanitarian law, that articulation of what has gone wrong, is going to be required for Netanyahu to feel enough pressure really to change. So I think that's the next thing we should be pushing for. I want to thank you again, Kenneth Roth, for coming on Parallax Views. You have a book coming out, uh, Writing Wrongs. And um, how can my listeners keep up with you? You're on uh, X, Twitter, whatever they're calling it these days, at Ken Roth, right? That's correct. Yeah. So that's that's the easiest way. Um, my book, I mean, I'm just finishing off the manuscript now. Um, but, you know, the way these things go, it'll be another nine months or so before it's published. So um, it'll be coming out by, you know, by Knopf. Um, I look forward to it actually being out in bookstores rather than just, you know, something on my computer. But we're getting there. I'm going to have you back on when it comes out. Thank you so much. Great. OK, thanks. Bye bye. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Kenneth Roth. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon. Your support is more vital now than ever. I only have one advertiser for this show, the mighty Mike Swanson of Wall Street Window, but otherwise, this program is entirely listener-supported. So your support is needed at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with the way out is not simply to say, don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm... I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff is a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight. With no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever.
I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.